back. Episode 23 of Radio Espoils Episodes. Okay, we're dealing with a missing person case uh, today. Uh, just let's get rid of the formalities and quickly move on. Radio Espoil, radio, E-S-P-I-A-L dot com. Join me there. Uh, we're available on most social media. Uh, this is a video cast that will go out on YouTube uh, that's my main channel and uh, we also are on multiple channels for a podcast which this episode likely will go out as a podcast I think I can figure that out it's difficult when we're doing uh, missing person cases and timelines we'll figure that out house rules comment by all means uh, stay away from conspiracy theories random crazy stuff uh, be respectful always be respectful particularly when we're dealing with cases like this uh, as you will have gathered from the thumbnail we're dealing with a missing case a well known case in Ireland Annie McCarrick uh, I'll very shortly have uh, Bonany AI coming up with just to give you a brief summary of the background of this case um yeah look that's pretty much it this could be quite intensive it's a very extensive uh, timeline i'm mick rooney i'm a journalist and this is what i do let's go annie bridget mccarrick born march the 27th 1966 an american woman from long island New York, went missing under suspicious circumstances in 1993 while she was residing in Ireland. McCarrick was born on Long Island, New York and she grew up and lived in Bayport until her move to Ireland in January 1987, aged 19, to study at St. Patrick's College for teacher training in Drumcondra. She later switched colleges and instead decided to study Irish literature at Maynooth University for three years. For two years she was in a relationship with Dermot Ryan, a period when Annie was renting and sharing a small cottage with a female friend in Ballybedon, Dublin. In 1990, she returned to New York and after a four-month period, the relationship with Ryan petered out. He returned to Ireland and later decided to move to Italy. Annie instead remained in New York and spent two years in the US studying for a master's degree. Previously, she had also been in a short relationship with Philip Brady, brother of her longtime friend Hilary Brady. She knew the Brady family in Clondalkin back since her arrival in 1987-88 and stayed with them for a period of time. But she still yearned for a new fresh start in Ireland in 1993. Her maternal and paternal families all had strong roots in Ireland, great-grandparents. During her years in Ireland, she still regularly commuted back to New York for short periods and family visits. Her parents also visited Ireland two or three times a year. After more than a two-year hiatus, Annie returned to Ireland on the 6th of January 1993 and insisted to her father that it would be a permanent move for good. This caused some strain between the pair, her father believing that she should cast aside this fanciful love affair and adventure with Ireland and return to live and work in New York. Almost all the family, friends, teachers, and people who knew Annie, saw her as an outgoing and well-adjusted person, trusting of others, if a little too idealistic at times. Annie McCarrick disappeared on Friday, March the 26th. 1993, one day short of her 27th birthday. Her mother Nancy had already planned to visit her late the following week, arriving Friday, April the 3rd, having just missed her daughter's birthday a week before. Annie, by then, had started renting and living in an apartment in Sandy Mount and shared it with two of her female friends Jill Twomey and Ida Walsh after responding to a newspaper advert for flatmates to share. Okay, you've heard the background to this case. It's quite a well-known case in Ireland. You've just heard Bronick go through the timeline, uh, the background to it. 
So let's really get into the actual day-to-day -day timeline. This case is, as I say, well known in Ireland and it's quite extensive. Always remember when I do these true crime missing persons cases, I stick to facts. What is known, what evidences there are, I don't do rambling opinions and conspiracy theories. You know that now. You've seen many other cases I've covered. Throughout this timeline, I'm going to snip in various images and videos as part of the timeline. Let's get straight into it. Cast your mind back. This is Thursday, the 25th of March, 1993. Annie McCarrick speaks with her friend Geraldine Delaney on the phone a former Minute College student on Thursday evening they've spent time together in both Dublin and New York they catch up and end the phone call with the understanding that Annie will possibly ring Geraldine and they will meet up that Sunday this is the last time Geraldine ever hears from Annie she tells Geraldine about how excited she is that her mother is visiting at the end of the following week. This is uh, Annie's mother was planning, I think on the Friday that following week uh, to visit her daughter in Sandy Mount where she lived. Irish police will later find some theater tickets Annie pre-booked and bought in her room for her mother's trip. Annie was always the planner. Now, we're going to move to the day of Annie going missing. This is Friday the 26th of March 1993. Picture in your mind, it's 7am in the morning. For many of you, it's the end of a working week, it's the last day. Flatmate Ada Walsh is already up and about. She's a busy day ahead and wants to get clothes washed and dried before she leaves for work and then straight on to her family in Newbridge. Newbridge is in County Kildare, uh, Ireland, for a weekend stay. The communal washing machine and dryer are coin operated and she doesn't have coin change. The three, the three girls have been sharing the apartment since January, which contains a single and a double room. Annie has taken the single room. Jill Tommy hasn't awoken yet. Ida knocks on Annie's door looking for coins. Annie is awake and sitting in bed. She's knitting away, a pastime she enjoys. Annie gives Ada some coins to get her stuff washed and dried. The pair share breakfast together and are then joined by Jill. They all get on well and Annie's flatmates are conscious of her birthday and that this weekend will be the first Annie will be alone in the apartment for a weekend since January. Just to clarify, they all, Annie answered, uh, I think it was an advertisement uh, in the newspaper um, and these three girls got together and shared this apartment in Sandy Mount and they've been together roughly two and a half, nearly three months. The girls talk and they are aware Annie's mother is coming over the following weekend. They agree, they agree a room swap so Annie's mother will feel more comfortable and they will have space together when she visits. Ida visits first and a little later, but she doesn't leave without giving Annie's Annie, her sister's number in Newbridge, just in case she is at a loose end over the weekend and wants to join them. I, I found this curious, and I found it curious in a sense that her two flatmates were already aware, kind of a birthday weekend for Annie, and they already were showing concern for a gregarious, outgoing girl and that the fact that they wouldn't be there. And in their statements, they reflect this. On the one hand, Annie is a planner and very social. And that concern that they show, not being there at the apartment over the weekend for Annie, it, it always left me wondering how much Annie told them 
about her social and work plans that weekend. She was a busy and industrious lady. I've always asked myself, did her two flatmates know that Hilary and Rita will talk about them shortly and perhaps others were going to be over for dinner the following evening? Did Annie reveal this to Jill and Ada and exactly when did Annie arrange the Saturday dinner for Hilary and Rita? Earlier that week, our last thought sometimes, sometimes later on the Friday morning. Again, we're digging into that now. Annie's roommate, Jill Tommy says goodbye to her roommate, Annie, and leaves to head to Cork and a stay with family for the weekend. Again, just to clarify, in Ireland, flatland, uh, where guys and uh, girls are sharing, you know, two, three, four people uh, in an apartment block, they get to know each other. Um, people come up from to th this apartment was in Sandy Mount Dublin this is a quite a common thing that people are either studying young students in Dublin from Monday to Friday or they're working maybe part time jobs full time jobs and then they head back for the weekend leave their apartment and head back to the country to the outer uh, areas of, of Ireland uh, to see their family and then they come back on the Sunday or Monday so this is quite a common thing at this time and remains so so just to put that in perspective in case you're wondering this is not a time of mobile phones Annie said to Edith that her watch had stopped during the night Jill leaves for a family visit to Cork that's an important point about Annie mentioning about her watch and this is in the Garda on Chicana's case files. This is mentioned. And it's a significant detail that in the multitude of documentaries, the multitude of news reports, you don't hear about. And it's important because there's a lot of details in this timeline I'm going to share with you that are not necessarily known with the public and your familiarity with this case. So we're now at uh, 10 a.m. to 11.10 a.m. Remember, it's Friday, March 26, 1993. After her two flatmates leave, Annie's alone now in the apartment. And sometime we know after 10 a.m., we'll go through that in the timeline, she has plans for that day to pick up groceries and visit her local bank. She needs to visit her Allied Irish Bank branch in Sandymount to arrange switching her bank account from Clondalkin, which is an area in the, the south a little bit further away, to her local Sandymount branch where she now lives. Again, at that time, that was a common thing to do. You'd register an account in an area you first moved in, and then you might move to a different area, but you wanted your local branch to register the local area that you'd moved to. So again, quite a common thing that, that people, particularly students did, whereas adults would have their account, you know, in an area where they lived and owned a house for many, many years. So this, this wasn't an unusual activity to do and Annie lived in a number of places she lived in the Clondalkin area as well as one or two other areas uh, in Dublin over her years in Ireland I think there's six six and a half years in Ireland now significantly she also visits her local Quinsworth supermarket in Sandymount just before 11 a.m. and brings bag or bags that's still an open matter. She brings them home. We know that the receipt for the groceries was found in one of the bags by detectives. And Jill and Ada, who obviously after Annie went missing, they found that receipt in the bag. Detectives also examined it. And we know it was time stamped in Quinsworth, in Sandymount, 
at the cashier point at 11.02 a.m. We even know that seven items of produce were bought. So that's the receipt. You see the seven items. You see the total that she uh, paid. So what she, what's, what's going on? What's the significance of that purchase? Well, Annie is planning to cook dinner at home for friends who are calling over to her apartment the following day on Saturday evening. Remember, this is part of our birthday celebration weekend. But exactly when these arrangements were made, we're not certain of. And this is important when I do these timelines. Don't assume anything. Don't assume when things happened or arrangements were made. We don't know exactly when these arrangements were made for this celebration party on the Saturday evening. That would have been Saturday, March the 27th. So, Annie returns from Quinsworth Supermarket in Sandy Mount and she leaves the groceries directly into her apartment. She doesn't unpack them. She's also gone to the bank to organize her uh, account change, the, the registered address uh, on the account. Both of these journeys to the supermarket and the Allied Irish Bank are all just a very short walking distance from her home. Now, you'll know I have dispute placement. There's a reason why I have that, having looked at some of the case files and interviews. Because, and I'll get into this later about documentaries and how things are portrayed and how the media deals with cases and reports things there's actually question marks as to how much shopping she actually bought we 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 have the receipt we know it's seven items was it really two bags that an awful lot of media reported seven items would fit in one bag where did she actually leave the groceries when she briefly arrived back at the apartment and headed back out and where was she going again an awful lot of documentaries you will have seen on this case have been incredibly loose and assumptive about you know what actually happened that morning and I'll say later there's a lot of gaps in this timeline that unfortunately we don't know of just to clarify, her visit to the Allied Irish Bank at Samney Mount is captured on CCTV footage inside the bank. The CCTV footage does not show her with the groceries. What seems clear is that both were separate journeys, the one to the supermarket, the one to the bank, from her nearby apartment. Combined with phone calls from a public phone box on Sandy Mount Green that day, it does suggest Annie was frequently popping in and out of her home locally. And that's an important detail that is often missed in the people that have covered this case. We're gonna see uh, some of that uh, CCTV uh, coverage now, uh, an image, a snapshot from it. Later, wet clothing is found loaded in her washing machine, casual and working clothing she used indicating that she may have used some of the morning period to also carry out some household chores. Her communal laundry area was below her apartment. Okay, so the floor of her apartment. 11.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. She makes a number of phone calls from a public phone box on Sandy Mount Green, close to her apartment block. Now, again, remember, we're not in mobile phone times in Ireland in 1993 most people didn't have mobile phones when they made a phone call and they weren't at home they had to make a phone call from a public phone box so when we consider subsequently how the Irish police traced phone calls and got logs always remember 
they didn't have the content or the substance of that phone call they just have the logs this number from a public phone box called that number that's it they rely purely on eyewitnesses and friends to say oh around that time yeah so and so did phone me and this is what the conversation was about so keep that in mind don't put yourself in 2022 and apply where we are now back to 1993 it should be noted on a common practice by property landlords at the time in Flatland Dublin there was a phone in Annie's apartment but it was only for incoming call usage while Irish police have examined phone records and call logs within the apartment and the nearby call box Annie used that day, they have not disclosed all of the information common in a case when no criminal charge has been made. One of those phone calls that morning after 11 o'clock is to our friend Anne O'Dwyer who lived in Rotgar, Dublin. Annie invites her friend to accompany her on a walk later in the afternoon. Her friend declines the invitation, explaining that she had hurt her ankle and would not be able to. Her friend Annie, uh, Anne is aware at this point that Annie intended to go walking in the Dublin mountains that afternoon. And that's significant because most of her friends became aware that that was her intention for the day. So the plans for the afternoon Annie had a part time waitress job in the courtyard restaurant in nearby Donnybrook Dublin she also waitressed in Leeson Street's Cafe Java and then their branch in Sandymount so she was very industrious work wise her jobs suited her outgoing and friendly nature Friday was a day off for her but she had indicated to her employer the previous day that she might pop into work to pick up our wages. But this visit never occurred. 3 p.m. that day. Now, all that is known is that Annie was in her apartment around 3 p.m. or just slightly after. Remember, the groceries bought earlier that morning are still in a bag of bags. And my understanding is they were on the hallway floor inside the apartment so again this reflects that Annie was in and out of the apartment that morning and into the early afternoon this fresh food produce that she bought it needs to be cooled it needs to be stored in the refrigerator at some point not long after 3pm Annie takes the number 18 bus to Ranla village from Sandymount Numerous documentaries have reported that the bag of bags, seven items as I've explained, were on the kitchen table. And as I've explained, my understanding is that throughout the events of Sunday, the following, sorry, two days later, the bags were later moved to a kitchen table by the occupants. They were left originally inside the door of the apartment by Annie. Now, I want to reference Donald McIntyre's documentary and explanation. I get frustrated with this kind of thing. I need everybody to understand when they look at this case. Don't filter and see this case through documentaries. Documentaries are dramatic reconstructions of a case they are loose and not always based on actual evidence video images used in those documentaries are part of a reconstruction they're stock photographs they're stock video images they're created scenes so when you look at those documentaries they're not necessarily the apartment itself if you looked at the Donald McIntyre documentary and you'll see groceries in a bag on a kitchen table that's not evidence that's not the actual bag 
that's just dramatic footage created to build a construction of the the day Annie was in her apartment and in and out of it. You know, I think in I, th I think I s during that documentary I saw it at, like I think it was a red pepper and a le. We know the stuff that Annie bought that day. It was actually to bake. It was to. I think it was to bake uh, tarts and cakes for her guests the following evening. You know, so we need to be very, very careful about what we construe from dramatic reconstructions in documentaries. They play fast and loose with things. And unfortunately, when people think about a case such as this one with Annie McCarrick, they base their understanding and recollection of it on the documentary, not the actual case itself and the specifics of it. So remember, sometimes our understanding of a case is based on a media presentation, radio or TV news, a dramatic documentary, but it's not the core case itself and actual known evidence in case files. And it's easy when you look at those documentaries to focus on something tiny, minimal, which is just you know, irrelevant really, seize upon it and then say, oh, but I saw and I know that that happened or that was there, why was that there? But in actual fact, you're looking at dramatization of the events, not the actual crime scene or the missing person scene. They're not 100% accurate. So that needs to be kept in mind. And I've seen so many people fix on that Donald McIntyre documentary, an RTE documentary, I think another TV3 documentary, and fix on things, sometimes silly, small things, and say, oh, I saw that, I saw that. It's almost like you're not, you weren't there on the day. That's a dramatization. Things are added in, to colour and make a sense and a story of what happened. It's a portrayal. It's not necessarily absolutely accurate. Now, a plumber working on a house nearby and a staff member of uh, the local uh, chipper or chip shop, as we call it in Ireland. Uh, this was actually a chip shop uh, owned by the Borzer family, well-known um, family in Dublin. Uh, who run a number of uh, uh, chip shop outlets would later say they saw Annie making her way to the number 18 bus stop. Both eyewitnesses were familiar with her in the area and recognised her that day. In 1993, this journey would have taken about 20 minutes. There, in Ranla, she can catch the bus to Enniskerry. 3.40pm A key witness, Emer O'Grady, a former co-worker at the courtyard restaurant recognises Annie in the queue for the bus. They don't speak and she believes Annie never saw her. They both worked at the courtyard just a month before when Emer left her position there. She says that she saw Annie boarding the number 44 bus to Enniskerry and Ranla after her. Emer takes her seat on the lower deck of the bus. Annie instead goes upstairs to the upper deck. Emer gets off the bus at Milltown. Now, let me just explain. Milltown is a very early stage of that sort of journey from Ranla all the way to Enniskerry. Police identify the bus driver, Paddy Donnelly, on the route. They also speak to other passengers later in their inquiries. No one, rem nobody remembers this distinctive young woman with an American-Irish accent, jeans, tan-coloured handbag, and exactly where she got off the bus between Milltown and Esgerry. Both the original investigation team and the later cold case team, I think the cold case team significantly kicked in around 2016. They're certain she made it as far as Milltown, but they are now more circumspect about as to whether she did get as far as Enniskerry village. They don't rule out that she did indeed get there, but they do not have concrete evidence she did. It's important to know from this point on, our timeline 
is now getting heavily circumstantial at best and at worst a series of loose eyewitness accounts some only reported police later in later years many never fully corroborated and often ignoring Annie McCarrick's normal behaviour and habits known to those who knew her well and like all missing persons uh, cases, cold cases, elaborate and fantastical theories will soon creep into the mix. Before we move on, let's discover what is known as fact and or reasonable to presume on March 26, 1993. Annie's parents, Nancy and John, her father would um, later uh, uh, was deceased, have went on record describing their daughter. Our friends at the time have also went on public record as to Annie and the person she was. This is all public record and also contained in police file statements and many documentaries on the case. Annie's movements and activity are reasonably known up until around 4pm that day. She would arrive in Enniscary village around 4.30, maybe slightly later. Everything after that is completely circumspect. However, there remain some questions still to this point in the timeline. Even today, with improved bus services, that Ranelagh and a scary journey would take a minimum of 40 minutes. In 1993, the journey, later in the day, could have stretched to anything between 50 and 60 minutes. So, Annie had a journey planned for that day, but we have to be very circumspect from the point of Milltown to Enniskerry, let alone beyond that to Glen Cullen. She had planned for the day, March 26th, and at least the late afternoon. She had plans for her birthday weekend, hosting friends on the Saturday evening, the visit of her mother the following week, the Friday, and plans to go on an adventure holiday that summer. She recounted this to work colleagues. She made the plans known to those around her and close to her. So this wasn't somebody who was just looking to disappear one Friday afternoon. We asked the questions. And some of the questions are. Why did she leave a walk in the mountains 27 kilometers away from where she lived, recording two separate bus journeys and at least an hour and a half traveling distance on public transport so late in the day and a day when the weather was steadily deteriorating throughout the afternoon you can go and check the weather for that day i can assure you that was not a late afternoon or evening you would particularly want to be out in if you didn't have to why did she leave her perishable groceries on the kitchen table or wherever they were placed and not put them away for several hours something that would take a minute or two to do wouldn't she be reminded of those groceries every time she walked into the kitchen or the hallway wherever she left them that morning shortly after 11 a.m and yet they were ignored and left there from the trace phone call logs, remember, public phone box, not mobile, she made one or more attempts to have someone accompany her on a mountain walk. Why would she do this if she were having some planned secret rendezvous with someone else? I, I ask this question because if you're having a secret rendezvous or maybe somebody romantically you've met recently that you're going to meet up with, why on earth would you be on the phone that morning asking good friends to accompany you? It doesn't make any sense. Which questions? Was she meeting somebody? What kind of friend if she was meeting somebody were they? Was it romantically inclined? It would seem a little odd. Why the Dublin Mountains when a beautiful sandy mount coast is minutes from her doorstep? How really prepared was Annie for a walk in the mountains, as described to her friends, on a deteriorating day of weather? Her two-week coat didn't have a hood. And the question 
that I think is not often asked and these are the minor details that are important and I'd be intrigued as to whether detectives in this case actually asked eyewitnesses they spoke to who maybe came forward with sightings of her asked was she carrying an umbrella because by god you'd have needed that day but I think we also have to ask are we over reading too much into Annie's description of a walk in the mountains to her friends that day but exactly what did a walk in the mountains mean to Annie maybe it meant nothing more than going to Enniskerry and just browsing and wandering through the village just getting out in the fresh air you know maybe it wasn't quite as intensive as a hike in the hills or walking from you know so I think we need to be conscious of that that we don't overread too much into what she said to friends that morning this was early spring in Dublin and on that day the weather was not great in the afternoon and evening it became a cold and wet evening by 6pm in the Dublin mountains in Ennis in Enniskerry and the bordering Wicklow area outside, outside of Enniskerry village many of the roads are unlit and rural between surrounding towns and villages it would have been completely dark by 7.30pm so in other words that window of opportunity to take a casual walk was actually quite extraordinarily narrow as good as a planner Annie was I do often wonder if she really fully appreciated the limited time and daylight hours she would have arriving in Enniskerry on a late March afternoon during poor weather for a casual walk in the mountains could this have amounted to nothing more than a ramble through the village of Enniskerry let's see what Nancy McCarrick, her mother, thought about that whole idea of Nancy going for a walk or maybe travelling further outside, outside Enniskerry. You know Annie best. Would that be a journey that she would take late at night in a dark hilly road? It seems, it doesn't even seem remotely possible, Walter. You know, maybe on a bright sunny day at nine in the morning, but certainly not the time that you're describing or the weather. I mean, I know you didn't know her, but still, that would, it, it just wouldn't, I can't imagine it happening. Subsequent to public appeals by Irish police, some eyewitnesses did come forward in the village of Enniskerry, believing they may have seen Annie late that afternoon, or at least a lady resembling Annie's appearance. One was a post office worker saying she remembered a young American woman matching Annie's description coming in for postage stamps alone. Another in a coffee shop called Poppy's. But this time she recounted that uh, Annie was in, or a woman resembling Annie, was in the company of a young man who ordered a slice of cake. The post office staff witness has since uh, deceased. Perhaps one of the biggest red herrings in this case came days later when a doorman, Sam Doran, at Johnny Fox's Glen Cunnan, it's a, a pub uh, high up in the uh, mountains, more than six kilometres away from Enniskerry, claimed that he had seen a woman matching Annie's description with a young man entering the premises, and the young man offered to pay Annie's uh, £2 uh, door charge for the Hooli music um, event that evening. This would have been around 9pm. He stated he never saw them leave. Doran, in his observation, mentions Annie rummaging in her bag for money, and which is when the man behind her offered to pay. I think the suggestion being maybe they weren't together, that the man was offering to pay when she was looking for for money from her bag moreover no other patron or staff member interviewed by police appeared convincing about seeing a woman looking like Annie McCarrick and having an American accent in the pub venue one other Paula Riley 
had a vague memory of a, an American woman in the back lounge that evening, but police concluded that he was uncertain of the actual day that it was. And he was not a regular or frequent visitor to Johnny Fox's pub. Just occasionally over the years she'd spent in Ireland, the, the six or so years. But it, it's important to note that she had brought her flatmates, uh, Jill and Ada, there a few weeks before her disappearance. So the place was kind of in her foremost mind, shall we say. When we were here in the door working, and the girl, she came in there, she strolled over, just about over there. And at that stage, I just caught by the arm and I said, sorry, look, there's a cover charge in here. At that stage, she stopped, and she looked in her bag like if she was looking for money, but it wasn't like if she was going to get money. It was more like a gesture for the gentleman behind the pay. But she seemed to be appearing across the room like as if she was looking for somebody. So at that stage, the chap behind, he said, I'll get that. And he stepped forward. And as he stepped in there, he had a pint in his left hand. He put it over there on that counter. And he took money out of his right-hand pocket, and he paid the cover charge for the two of them. And the chap was wearing a wax jacket. He seemed about 5'8", five, 5'10", five, uh, squarish face, clean-shaven, tightish hair, I would say flat-chested, square shoulders. Looked like a lad that was fairly fit, you know? And, um, and then at that stage, then, once they had paid, they proceeded over across the far side of the room, and we didn't see them leave at the end of the night, like, you know, we had a full house here. Okay, so you've seen the, um, the account uh, to media. Uh, Sam Doran also spoke to Angada Sheikhan of the Irish Police. He also spoke to media, uh, prominently a number of media. He explained his account, what he witnessed. But it's also important to note that there were other people in that premises interviewed. Notwithstanding a French family later came forward to police hearing of the case and provided multiple photographs of that evening in the pub while they were on holiday there in Ireland. The series of photographs were carefully examined and nowhere does Annie McCarrick appear in the background or the initial supposedly square-faced man in her company they sought, this being referring to the, the man who paid her charge in. Who's, uh, and the photo fit appeared in Irish Police Appeals to the Public. And over the years, this honest witness account consumed much police time as a line of inquiry. It sparked a wholesale search of the surrounding area. The police even set up their search headquarters from there. Now, this is one of the concerns I have about that initial search for Annie. In searches, generally, and you all know I've examined many, many cases, a search predominantly and always happens from the last known, confirmed and absolute place the person was last seen. And it expands out and clues and evidences are followed as to how far it tracks. I've always been baffled why this case set up a headquarters in Johnny Fox's and expanded from there almost backwards towards Enniskerry. It never made sense to me. It's the wrong way logistically and operationally to carry out a search for a missing person. That whole thing in Johnny Fox has led to fingers being pointed at innocent locals and patrons of the area, particularly those family links in the north of Ireland and we'll get into that one and then the, uh, there was the elaborate tale of an IRA member banished and fleeing to America because he killed Danny after saying too much about his covert activities the time uh, in his time while under the influence of alcohol Irish police with the help of US investigator who met and spoke to a local woman living in Glen Cullen at the time and with a resemblance to Annie McCarrick now believe the entire Johnny Fox's line of investigation is bogus and a simple case of mistaken identity. Annie's mother Nancy is also adamant that her daughter would never have risked walking alone in the dark and poor weather over a distance of six 
1.6 kilometers from Enniskerry to Glencullen. You saw the video um, footage insert earlier of of Nancy's take on that. In essence, and this is very much a case of the cold case file that has completely restripped the case and re-examined it, and their belief now is that Annie never got as far as Glencullen on the evening of March 26th. That said, there's absolutely no shred of evidence that Annie abandoned her trip to Enniskerry. That was her intention, that was the understanding, that's what was said to friends. But nor did she return to her apartment in Sandy Mount that Friday evening or Saturday morning. If there was, they would have been witnesses. But what cannot be ruled out still is that Annie could have made arrangements to meet someone unknown to her other friends and this is maybe why she was in such a determined rush to go to Enniskerry so late in the day. Or worse, still filled with birthday celebrations, time free from work, no walking companion available, she took a chance when she got there on a last minute rendezvous with someone she should not have trusted so easily in the Enniskerry area. From Annie's friends, what is clear, a different picture emerges of this young, vibrant lady. She was not that much of a drinker and not someone who would sit in the pub alone for hours and not with a complete stranger she just met. While she loved people and friends, she was not an adventurous loner and almost always relaxed and socialised with friends. She was a planner. She was an organiser. Her time and events with friends. For her, Irish pubs were just a place to immerse herself in the culture, the music and the conversation. Now let's get back to the true factual timeline. We're now jumping to Saturday, March 27, 1993. We know nothing more of what happened, Annie, that evening. So Saturday, March 27, 1993. We're at 8pm in the evening. This is the day later. Annie's two friends, Hilary Brady and his girlfriend, read a call to our apartment expecting to be greeted by Annie on a planned dinner. There's no answer at the door. Her two flatmates are away and the two friends of Annie's try the doorbell a few times. Thinking Annie has been delayed somewhere or caught up somewhere else in, I don't know, birthday celebrations that day, they retire to a nearby pub just to have a quick drink. Hilary actually uses a public phone and calls Nancy McCarrick in New York, Annie's mother. He's forgotten her apartment phone number. They talk briefly. There's no particular alarm. Hilary tries the number of the apartment, the phone inside, but gets no answer. Hilary and Rita head off and they return for one final time later, but there's still no answer at the doorbell of the apartment and they head home a little bit confused and concerned and really at this point this is when things start to escalate Hillary along with Annie's mother Nancy are going to play a critical role in escalating their concerns about Annie in the coming 36 hours of that weekend according to McCarrick's family's friend and investigator Michael Griffin he confirms that on the Saturday morning Annie was due in for an early shift at the local Sandy Mount Bakery as he described it but never appeared for but she never appeared for work now, now I've always suspected that Griffin is mistaken in his I think it's just kind of a loose description of a bakery to, to media and that he's actually referring to the local Sandy Mount Cafe Java where Annie did uh, work part time uh, this would tie in with the wet work clothing left in a machine and found in the laundry area undried when our apartment was examined by detectives. Annie will need some of those clothes dried the following day for both work and her evening dinner engagement with Hilary and Rita. 
and again this is another point I think that is often missed it's sometimes small details I've never believed that Annie intended to stay out late that evening I believed that she intended to come home finish off our washing oh damn I left the shopping out put that that away maybe even pull out and do a bit of baking for Hillary and Reid who are arriving tomorrow get get those cakes done then I'm ready and all sorted get to bed up for my uh, shift in the cafe the following morning get home and then enjoy the rest of the day and Hillary and Reid is coming home I actually think that was her plan Sunday March the 28th throughout the day not only is Annie's mother concerned not having heard from her daughter but friends of Annie are now counting on her parents with similar concerns her work colleagues and friends haven't heard from Annie since at least the previous Thursday or Friday period Nancy McCarrick learns on Sunday from her daughter's friends that she did not appear for her early work shift on Saturday morning she immediately contacts her airline in the United States and changes her planned trip bringing it forward on Friday to early Monday morning March 29th Ada Walsh is the first to arrive back at the apartment in Sandymount on Sunday not long after she hears the hallway phone ring and comes out of her room to answer it it's Hilary Brady he explains to her what happened the previous evening when he and his girlfriend Rita arrived there for a meal to meet Annie and there's growing concerns Ada would later recount to Irish police in statements that she found the groceries by Annie inside the door of the apartment block a clothes iron also pulled out and not put away a telephone directory opened on a table it will be interesting to know what page that directory was opened on and if it was entered as evidence into Annie's missing case file I haven't seen that evidence what has also been publicly disclosed in police appeals is that Hillary Brady was so concerned by Sunday evening he once again left his home like the Saturday evening with his girlfriend Rita he went to Annie's Sandy Mount apartment for the second night in a row the second flatmate Jill Tommy, returned later that evening and Ada after Ada had returned Hilary Brady began phoning Dublin hospitals and continued throughout that night and into the early morning to liaise with Annie's mother in New York. Monday, March the 29th. Work colleagues and close friends report to Annie's mother that they have still not actually seen Annie since Thursday. Her flatmates did see her on Friday morning but had not returned back to the apartment until later on Sunday finding it empty as it was the previous Friday afternoon the groceries still not stored away some only briefly spoke to her early Friday by phone Nancy McCarrick arrives off an early morning flight from New York Hillary Brady meets her at the airport Nancy continues to make frantic phone calls to people who know Annie before midday after leaving Dublin airport she reports to Irish Town Garda station with Hillary and formally reports her daughter Annie missing later on inspection at the Sandy Mount apartment no sign of a break-in is reported and nothing is discovered missing even then nobody knew the many years on Garda Sheikhan Irish police would remain open with this case file totally unsolved Tuesday March the 30th Irish police launch their missing person appeal publicly for information on the whereabouts of Annie McCarrick several days later that week and in the coming weeks Irish police continue to put out a description of Annie McCarrick tweed coat, jeans, cowboy boots and a dark coloured tanned handbag with a person with a soft spoken Irish American uh, accent and received multiple reports of sightings of her across several counties in Ireland 
from Donegal, Galway, Mead to Dublin. These all come to nothing. If anything, they distract from resources from the two primary counties of Dublin and Wicklow. 1993 to 2008. Despite family private investigations by the McCarrick family, Irish police continue to renew their appeal for more information from the public. They removed lines of inquiry and reduced their suspect list, eventually focusing on one primary person suspected of involvement in other similar cases of missing women out alone walking in the Dublin and Leinster areas throughout the 1990s. The 11th of February 2000 A young Carla woman is kidnapped, repeatedly raped in the Wicklow Mountains, Ireland. During the ordeal, the kidnapped woman is locked in the boot of a Toyota Corolla car by her attacker. Over several hours, he repeatedly rapes and beats her. She was then locked in the boot again while he drove to Spinnens Cross in the Wicklow Mountains where he again raped her. The woman began to fight back and her attacker produced a plastic bag which he placed over her head in an attempt to suffocate her. He stopped his assault when two hunters came across the scene and recognised him as a Wicklow native. He fled the area and returned to his home but was arrested the following morning. Larry Murphy, her attacker, admitted what he had done and was later convicted of rape and attempted murder. Murphy was sentenced to 15 years, taking into account his guilty plea. He served just 10 years. As it happened, Murphy was sentenced before the Irish Sex Offenders Act was introduced in 2001, and he was not subject to a post-release supervision order. 2010 to 2022. In 2011, Murphy fled Ireland after his release and took up residence in various countries over a number of years. Spain, Germany, the Netherlands and the UK. Although denying any involvement in multiple cases in Ireland and abroad in Europe, he is constantly under police surveillance and was believed to be a primary or potential suspect in at least eight cases of missing women in Ireland, including Annie McCarrick during the 1990s. Known as Ireland's vanishing triangle of missing women during the 1990s, some of these believe-related cases ceased after Larry Murphy's incarceration. However, by 2018, Irish police eliminated Murphy from the missing cases of Jojo Dullard and Fiona Sinnott, reducing his status as primary or potential suspect to just six such cases which included the Annie McCarrick case. My conclusions, my take? Given the lack of widespread CCTV and no mobile phone activity in the Annie McCarrick case at the time, the timeline itself is incredibly loose, to say the least. We have some fixes, the Quinsworth shopping receipt, this, the banking CCTV, but for me, there are far too many gaps and unknowns within a very lengthy period of time. You, you know, you're talking 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. on the day of her disappearance. Remember, this is 1993. It's not 2003, not 2023. And this problem is quite common in missing persons cases from more than 20, 30 years ago in Ireland and the UK. If this were 2022 and these cases occurred, I'm absolutely convinced they will be solved, if not in days, then in weeks, then at least a few months, with a charge and later conviction. We need to remember that when we retrospectively look back at historic or cold cases, all that has to be remembered. We can't apply what we have or know now back when an investigation was launched and active. By all accounts from those who knew Annie McCarrick, she was a person of habit and behaviour, but subject to a little impulse and maybe even a little naivety about trusting people. She loved friends and company. It's the very thing that drew her to Ireland beyond her family roots. She had clearly lots of friends, was independent, and when she wanted to do something, she had her mind made up, she did it. A free spirit, 
while still appreciating the comforts of life, friends and adventure. On the day of March 26, 1993, everything she did was planned and constructive. One has to consider Annie's mindset and the person she was before jumping to any conclusions or assumptions. Like many, this case has suffered too much of that over the years and there are aspects there in black and white that have been ignored. She switched colleges when she knew St. Patrick's wasn't right for her. She wasn't afraid to upend and move abodes. She was a meticulous planner. Everything about that day screams it. The attention to changing her local bank account, getting food for hosting of a birthday meal the following day on the Saturday, organising and phoning friends, even knitting during the morning. She filled her time. She knew the bus routes to Enniskerry. She had it all timed. This wasn't a young lady who lounged around during a day off in front of TV doing nothing. She'd even planned to possibly head out to a restaurant. She worked at in Donnybrook to pick up her wages, yet didn't do it. From 10am to 3pm, she executed her plans, all local, contacted friends about her plans that day, and yet it took her five hours to do all that. For me, there are too many gaps in the timeline, and we don't know exactly what happened. Still too many absolute certainties. With her simple housekeeping and cleaning, there's a lot more she did that day than just what we know of. It is the things she didn't do that raise the biggest concerns. The groceries not put away, the undried wet clothes in the laundry room, a less than well planned hasty late departure for a walk in the mountains that was looking increasingly unsuitable but tired by the time she did leave, not turning up for work on Saturday morning, not returning to her apartment by Saturday evening. She was already planning things to do when her mother arrived the following week. She was talking with work colleagues about her summer holiday. But something goes askew by early afternoon on March the 26th. Her friend or friends can't join her on a walk in the mountains for various reasons. And yet, groceries bought hours before, she departs in haste leaving them unpacked. The very stable of her birthday party hosting the following day. She doesn't seem like a person who leaves the house without planning on when exactly she intends to be back home. But that's exactly the way it seems now. She departed after 3pm with a plan somehow got abandoned. Why? For me the key to this case is not what happened after 3pm but what happened and knowing everyone she commuted she communicated with prior to then on that day. While a walk in the mountains may have been planned earlier that day something triggered such a late and hasty departure. I simply don't accept that Annie McCarrick had planned to leave that late in the day for Enniskerry. I calculated back then such a trip to Enniskerry from Sandy Mount would take a minimum of 90 minutes travelling in time in total and the time you spend there walking or browsing in the village would have to be added on as well as preparation and planning to leave and get home uh, of another 90 minutes. A cold and dirty March day doesn't give you much time if you plan to walk in the mountains as well leaving at 3pm and by bus. You'd be in Enniskerry by 4.30pm at the earliest and most shops would be closing by 5 or 6pm during that season. So nature on a walk would be the only attraction or at least staying close to the Enniskerry village. It was raining there by 6pm on that day. Remember, dark by 7.30pm. The entire trip at that time of day makes no sense without a definitive reason to be there and a clear and planned way to get back home after dark 7 to 7.30 p.m. It's all too casual for a planner like Annie and someone with a part-time job and a budget. This isn't someone with carefree abandon and money to get home safely to Sandy Mount by staying out far from home until 11 p.m. 
I'm convinced she only went there for a specific reason and likely to meet someone pre-planned and perhaps arranged at the last moment that afternoon. Also, with an assured way to get back home safely, she believed. And sadly, we know that never happened. I've never bought into the Johnny Fox's pub scenario that evening. Doesn't wash without proper corroboration of far more witnesses, which should have been the case outside of Sam Doran, uh, Doran the doorman. I don't believe Annie McCarrick even got beyond Enniscary alive that late in the afternoon, least of all taking on a six kilometre trip to Glenclonan over the other side of the mountains. Whatever fate awaited her that evening, whether by arrangement or opportunism, Annie McCarrick lies somewhere in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains like at least a half dozen other women during that decade. And we'll never know unless someone confesses or someone comes forward with significant information. If you have any information on the disappearance of Annie McCarrick, contact the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. You don't have to, but you can quote the case number. Case file C31-2493. Missing Annie Bridget McCarrick. I'll never see her again, but I guess my greatest wish would be to be able to take her home. Have a grave that I could go to. So to find out, you know, what happened to her really would, would be a great gift at this point, really would. Thank you for joining me on this episode 23 of uh, the Annie McCarrick uh, missing cold case file. Uh, yeah, look, it is what it is. Um, give us a like, subscribe, share this video. You don't have to. If you liked it, you liked it. If you didn't, you didn't. Take care. God bless. We'll see you again soon.